Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 3. No Prize from God is a series of conversations with creative people about radical theology, about belief, unbelief, and everything in between. My guest today is the Reverend Broderick Greer. Broderick offers lectures and facilitates conversations at the intersection of social media, American history, queer theory, black theology, human rights, and racial justice. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Religious News Service, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, and most recently Teen Vogue. Broderick is the curate at Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church and School in Memphis, Tennessee. So here it is, my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. This is No Prize from God. was your childhood like in terms of your first encounters uh, with faith? My maternal grandmother was the church musician at the church I grew up in. We lived about five minutes away from her. And my dad's parents came to faith in their 60s. And my grandfather was a trustee at his church. And my grandmother, paternal grandmother, was the president of their women's ministry for many years. Church was just very central. And I sang in my maternal grandmother's choirs growing up. And my mother was always a soloist at church as well. So we were at church for choir rehearsal Thursday night. We were in church every Sunday morning from 10.30 to 1.30. And if we had a 3.30 service, we were in church from 3.30 to 6.30. To me, I thought that that was what life was all about and that everyone was in church all the time and <laughs> right. everyone's best friends were, you know, 70-year-old church women. <laughs> and, you know, that's just kind of the environment I grew up in. For me, in the Black Baptist congregation I grew up in, church was a place of safety and a place of warmth and welcome from a very early age. And those are, those are my earliest memories. It was a place I could fall asleep. It's a place I could have fun with friends. And it was a place, ultimately, that I encountered God in Jesus Christ. And so that, that was my earliest experience of Christianity and faith. Have you always lived in the South your whole life? I have. I uh, grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, and went to college, Henderson, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half away from Memphis, which is in West Tennessee. Went to seminary in Alexandria, Virginia, at Virginia Theological Seminary, which is an Episcopal seminary, and was then ordained in Memphis and serve a church here and have been here for two years. So I've been I've lived in Tennessee for two stints, Texas and Virginia. What else were you interested in in childhood outside of the church, you know, in terms of culture? music, movies, literature. Were you interested in things outside of the church or or were those things all sort of interconnected? Yeah, I had a a deep interest as a kid with the Kennedy family. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I want to be Jackie Onassis. 
I want to wear a pair of dark sunglasses. I want to be Jackie. Oh, 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 please don't die. And with the British royal family, I think one of the first websites I ever visited was the BBC News website. And they used, I don't even know if they still have it, but in the early aughts, they had these basically profiles on each, like, European royal family, each member of the British royal family, and I would just, like, pour over the over those all the time. My cousin and I had this really intricate, like, storyline behind all of our action figures. <laughs> yes. And it involved a lot of, like, politics and, like, um, nepotism, and we... We're both really dramatic about that, and, and I love that growing up. A lot of palace intrigue, one might say. Yes. I also really enjoyed cartoons like Recess, Rugrats. I watched a lot of TV, a lot of Cartoon Network and Boomerang. All the formative millennial cartoons. Yes. And was a huge fan of the I Love Lucy show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I grew up in a, a racially diverse neighborhood in Fort Worth. And so we were in a, a really safe neighborhood. And so we were out, you know, all the time playing with neighbors. And, you know, it was basically that whole come home when the lights, the street lights come on. I mean, that was basically the way I grew up. So my brother and I were out all the time and it was just fun. I mean, it, I had such a fun and warm childhood. So you mentioned kind of your own personal encounter with God. I'm always curious, particularly, you know, with people of faith, that divergence, that moment where your faith transforms from something that belonged to your parents and becomes more sort of your own. Do you remember any particular event or series of events where you felt like you turned that corner? I guess maybe one moment was when I was 12 or 13 and I went to a vacation Bible school at a a church in our neighborhood that was not the church I grew up in. And they had a youth group. And that's basically where I decided at that age that I was going to go to church and I was going to be a member. I would understand that church now as a fundamentalist church. I, I didn't know that then. But that was kind of my first time to kind of own, you know, have kind of a faith of my own, asking questions of my own. Um, so, yeah, probably early adolescence. Who were some of the important figures in terms of authors and things like that, who you were turning to for answers? I've read a lot. And one of the downsides to the fundamentalist church that I ended up going to as a teenager was that you could only read authors who were a part of that denomination. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I read broadly across that tradition and I guess got bored and started reading people outside of the Church of Christ, like Brian McLaren, Rob yeah. Bell, and a few other people who were in what at that time was being called the emerging church movement. Sure. Um, which led me ultimately to N.T. Wright, who, through his writing, led me to visit the Episcopal Church. And around that time, college, seminary, I started reading a lot of minority authors, women, people of color, LGBTQ people, which kind of brought me back to kind of the faith of my parents and, and of my own people. Yeah, that, that's kind of been my circuitous journey in many ways back home. Educate me about N.T. Wright. I'm uh, you know familiar with the emergent church movement, but uh, N.T. Wright is a new name to me. So N.T. Wright was a, it, well, he was the Church of England's Bishop of Durham at that time. I think he's now the principal of a theological college in the UK somewhere. And he was doing a lot of work, and I think he still does, on, gosh, what did they call it? New Perspectives on Paul and also the historical Jesus. And he was really concerned with bringing the centrality of kind of the historical resurrection back to theological 
and biblical scholarship. The idea of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ as opposed to merely allegorical. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of a reaction against Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. So he would be considered kind of a, a mainstream evangelical in many ways. But I was more interested in his theological reflections on sacraments, and that's what ultimately led me to the Episcopal Church. I'm from an Irish Catholic family on my dad's side, and an Irish-German-Scottish family on my mom's side who were Presbyterian. So I had some exposure in my childhood to both sort of you know, Catholicism and Presbyterianism. And I don't know if, you know, it's something cultural, but of course, you know, when you think of Ireland, you think of the conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And I think one of the things that first intrigued me about the Episcopal Church is that combination of forward-thinking, modern theology with, you know, for lack of a better word, ritual. Only, only a Protestant would say, for lack of a better word, ritual. <laughs> exactly. Like it's, a, like it's a dirty word, right? Like, I'm, like it's I'm, a bad I'm, thing. I'm guilty saying yeah. it, yeah. You know, with, at the risk of, uh, you know, asking you to speak for, you know, like a monolithic faith that, of course, is very diverse like any faith. What are some of the central tenets for people who are new to even hearing about the Episcopal Church that are probably familiar with mainline evangelicals and, uh, and the Catholic Church? What are kind of some of the differences and main things that it's about? You know, I would say, and, and the Book of Common Prayer is pretty clear about this, that the principal act of worship for an Episcopal parish and community on a Sunday is the Eucharist. And there's a document from Vatican II, um, the Roman Catholic Church, that says that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. And there is this sense that this worship, this service, this assembling of baptized people on a Sunday around God's table is the most important thing that someone can do in a week. And that is what initially drew me to the Episcopal Church, is this sense that there is assurance in the Eucharist, in receiving bread and wine, of forgiveness, of infinite love, love that does not fail, that does not run out, and of a tangible connection with the triune God in Christ. You know, Christ is the one who ultimately is offering himself again and again to us in bread and wine. There is no mediation there. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing, when, when you receive bread and wine into your body, there's, there's no person standing between you and Christ. And so just that assurance and that presence and that incarnate dimension that Christ truly is present in bread and wine, that sacramental dimension of the Christian life, I think is what makes the Episcopal Church um, special. You know, it, it gives the Episcopal Church an eye toward God's future, and it also gives us a deep-rootedness in a very old faith as well. Yes, I think that's what I find the most fascinating about the Episcopal Church is that idea that progressive thought and the ancient and mystical don't have to be mutually exclusive, that they can not only coexist, but in fact, complement one another. It's interesting, you know, we were talking about the emergent church movement a little bit ago. Some folks went so far in one direction that they discarded the name Christian altogether. And then others went into this direction to where, you know, I like to say it was basically the same old fundamentalism dressed up in a hoodie and a five o'clock shadow. One thing that I have often encountered is this idea that 
people who are coming from a more progressive theological point of view are just trying to people please that it's somehow bending toward culture at the expense of higher truths. But taking what I sort of intuitively already felt to be right as a jumping off point and studying and investigating and reading the work of different theologians, I came around to the idea that it's really the church who is guilty of bending to culture for generations, going back, you know, and really distorting a lot of what the Gospels in particular stand for in pursuit of empire, in pursuit of oppression. It's really the church. So many of the negative things that we associate with it were in fact a result of the church giving in and compromising itself to suit culture. It just so happens that it was not this modern culture, but, uh, you know, a culture of generations and generations ago. One of my favorite things I've seen you say, if theology can be used to oppress, murder, and brutalize women, black people, trans people, queer people, bisexual people, and people with disabilities, then why can't theology be used to liberate us, dignify us, and renew us? I was at a um, theology convening last year, and Ruby Sells was there, and of course, everyone knows who Ruby Sells is. Joining us to talk about this Friday's Stop the War on Our Children Mother's March is nationally recognized human rights activist, theologian, historian, social critic, and educator Ruby Sales, founder of the Spirit House Project. And we are so glad to have you here. And in the middle of her conversation, she mentioned that black people had taken, she, she talks about the difference between black folk religion and the black church. And basically she argues that black folk religion is the religion that existed outside of the institutional church. Hmm. And it was kind of that, that untamed spirit of black people and black Christians that was always thirsting for justice, always uh, challenging the status quo. And she said, you know, we had taken the religion of our enslavers and had repurposed it for our liberation. You know, the, that's the cue that I'm seeking to take. You know, there's nothing that is perfect about Christianity. There's nothing perfect about being a human. There's nothing perfect about life in general. And so, you know, is there a way that we can be honest, humorous, and hold our traditions lightly and say, there is nothing that is exempt from scrutiny in our faith. Structures, assumptions, doctrines, practices, there's nothing that should be exempt from, from scrutiny. I, I think a lot of that just has to do with just being an, an adult person who is a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. And a, an adult person. Yeah. Or, or an adult person who is in a marriage relationship or, or anything. I mean, you, like, you know, your spouse, you know, their faults that does not necessarily rush you toward divorce. Uh, you may think about it, it may happen, but you know, kind of the priority in a lot of healthy relationships is, is making what you have work and not really being preoccupied with something that's not there. And so that's my relationship to Christianity and the church. It is what I know. It is what in many ways has raised me and shaped me and formed me. And I'm honest about it. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to defend the church when it's defenseless. And I believe in it. I mean, it's a, it's a paradoxical relationship just like so many relationships are. I've never thought about it that way in terms of the context of any other relationship, because I think with religion and faith, so many of us often strive to either find the religious system that lines up 100% with everything we think and feel and want to believe, you know, our, our confirmation bias, or finding something that we mostly agree with 
and putting ourselves into this ideological cage of conforming to the other parts that don't necessarily feel right. I love that idea that you've laid out about relationships, you know, because no relationship is perfect. No partner is perfect. No person is perfect. We're not perfect. So why would our relationship to really any ideological system or spiritual path be perfect, perfectly suited to our every exact need? Now, of course, religion attempts to address life's biggest questions and our humankind's search for meaning. And yes, religion has played such an important and oftentimes tyrannical, terrible role in policy and public life. And absolutely, it should be questioned always, and as you put it, scrutinized. But it's interesting that most of us wouldn't apply those same standards to enrolling or experiencing or learning about anything else, you know, whether it's people that you choose to form a band with, or a school that you select, or training in a martial art, you know, and whether or not you connect exactly in the way that you want to with a particular instructor, you know, it's so it's, it's kind of crazy to me, the idea that because something doesn't line up exactly perfectly with what we want it to be, or think it should be, that we would dismiss it outright. Anglicanism in general has a lot of room for diversity of thought and theology. What makes someone Anglican is not that they, or Episcopal, is not what they believe. Um, it's what they pray. And so our what makes us Anglican is how we pray and our connection to bishops who are connected to the Archbishop of Canterbury. We're not a confessional church. We're not a confessional tradition. You know, there are, there's not a list of things you have to believe in order to be Anglican. Of course, we are a creedal tradition. We affirm the ecumenical creeds of the church. But beyond that, how we pray, how we worship, um, the way we structure our liturgy is what ultimately makes us Anglican and Episcopal Christians, you know, which is very different from, from a lot of other traditions. I mean, I'm not saying that that's like necessarily the best way to approach anything, but that's the way we approach it. And that was, you know, very attractive to me about the tradition I'm a part of now. Yeah. Uh, so and what was that seminary experience like? My seminary is um, a small community. And so there is kind of direct access to any professor. Uh, the dean and president, he would be at morning prayer with us and at noon Eucharist, evening prayer. He was always in the refectory, which was our um, cafeteria. And so there, there was just this sense of connected, connectedness in the community that I really appreciated. Um, I really, really loved the exposure in seminary to, um, kind of the earliest Christian writers and thinkers, um, St. Augustine of Hippo. I mean, these were people that I had heard of, but had never really read for myself. i had only read kind of secondary sources on them, but had never really read their stuff. St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, St. Basil, I mean, on and on and on. And so thinking, oh my goodness, you know, we have all these questions about the Trinity. We have all these questions about allegory and myth. And, and Christian people have been wrestling with this from the very beginning of Christianity. And in some ways, some of these disputes have been resolved, but in many ways they haven't. And so really kind of seeing myself as entering the river that is Christian thought. Mm. And of course, with cross-pollination from other disciplines, you know, I try not to only read theology. And I, I also try not to just read prose. One thing, one really formative experience was going to a preaching conference in seminary. 
And it was all about poetry. This was in 2014. Mm-hmm. And Mark Oakley, who is the canon chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, was talking about preaching as poetry and, you know, kind of the preacher as poet, which really, really spoke to me. It made me realize, oh my goodness, I don't ever read poetry. And this is probably why my preaching so boring. <laughs> because I think, you know, I think in such a prose way. Mm-hmm. And so I've had kind of this three-year journey with poetry and, and discovering poets that I'd heard of but never read. Um, and so that that just opened up a new world for me. And, po- you know, non poets who aren't Christian. I mean, just so many different people who are saying such compelling things in such musical ways. And I remember Canon Oakley saying that, you know, God is more poetry than pose. God is more poet than um, a prose writer. And, and I began thinking, oh, yeah, that's definitely my experience of God. I, if I needed to, you know, talk about my experience with God, talking probably wouldn't be the best way to approach it. A song would be or a poem would be the same way you don't list, you know, this is, these are the 21 reasons I love my spouse and on, <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. You write a love song. <laughs> and that's why the Christian tradition is so rich with poets and mystics and lyricists. As I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm realizing I read predominantly, almost exclusively nonfiction. I don't read much fiction at all. And I don't read any poetry whatsoever. Definitely inspiring me to go down that rabbit hole soon. Canon Oakley also says that, you know, if you're going to tell someone a story and you say, on June 21st, 1983, dot, 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 mm-hmm. they hear that a lot differently when they hear once upon a time, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, how do we how do we think and preach and sing and communicate in a way that that is lyrical, that is musical, that is not afraid of metaphor, that is not allergic to a figure of speech. I mean, and, and that's really fundamentalism. It's this, um, or the antithesis of fundamentalism, which is this preoccupation with certainty and certitude mm. and, um, and lists and, you know, on and on and on. And so <laughs> I think uh, the, an- the is it the antidote against fundamentalism is probably a poem. And that's a magnificent segue into another topic I wanted to get into with you. And that is the challenge of what's been called the new atheism. You know, I would need many more hands to count the number of friends and acquaintances who, you know, are very inspired by the books from the so-called Four Horsemen of Atheism and who listen religiously, pun sort of intended, to the Sam Harris podcast. You know, and these are people who feel that not only is religion of any kind ridiculous, but that it's a plague upon humankind and should be thrown into the dustbin of history immediately. And that all reasonable and thinking people need to be deprogrammed from its influence. And, you know, our conversation so far has been pretty insular within the realm of theology and specifics. But I'm curious for your thoughts on, you know, those who feel very strongly that a conversation like this one, we might as well be talking about Dungeons and Dragons or the Lord of the Rings. People who are very zealous in their proselytizing and push in this sort of militant atheism? Yeah, I I think fundamentalism of any kind really distorts our sense of imagination, our ability to imagine and to think broadly and to imagine broadly, whether that is under the guise of kind of a reasonable atheism or a reasonable theism. You know, certitude and certainty snuff out imagination and beauty and complexity. And so, you know, people often 
you know, quote, lose their faith because they end up realizing that the thing that they thought they believed in was actually a dead end because there was no humane response to their suffering or to their trauma. And so a lot of my work is, you know, attempting to process the Christian faith and and think about the Christian faith and pray through the Christian faith in a way that embraces complexity and nuance. Hmm. And that is the impetus for starting this podcast series in the first place. A large part of the motivation, that challenge that you've just described. I found that the older I get, the less consumed by the quest for certainty I am and the more comfortable I am in the margins the more I'm experiencing a greater totality of a a living, breathing, workable faith that includes doubt and that is in some ways almost the enemy of certainty. You know, seeing articles on a regular basis, like articles that say, you know, a group of Ivy League academics strongly believe that we could be living in a simulation created by aliens or created uh, by our distant descendants from some other future and, you know, different dimensions, parallel multiverses, alternate realities. And a lot of thinking, science-minded, rational people can read this stuff and easily accept it. Um even in terms of a theory or in terms of a great unknown or a possible explanation for things that remain unseen and undiscovered. And yet, when it comes to thousands of years of tradition in all sorts of the world's major faiths and disciplines and religions, you know, you talk about the Eucharist and that's just superstitious nonsense. Science is constantly showing us that there are infinitely more possibilities than there are certainties when it comes to the larger reality and our role in it, let alone our purpose in it, which science doesn't and really shouldn't necessarily seek to explain. And for all of the evils for which the world's major religions are rightly criticized, for all of the evils and injustices that we can criticize various systems of government and ideologies and party affiliations and so on to also turn around and dismiss, you know, the faith of someone like Malcolm X, whose belief wasn't just anecdotal. It was part and parcel to his pursuit of justice and his, you know, prophetic mission on this earth. And there are countless examples for all of the examples of people who have twisted any ideology or belief system and used it as a means to justify cruelty. There are countless individuals, whether it's liberation theologists, I mean, you can just go down the list um, of people who are fighting for justice in this world, who are not only inspired, but empowered by some type of living faith. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this sense that there is a reality beyond themselves that is inexplicable in many ways. Yeah, and so many transformative historical figures have had that rootedness in the visible and the invisible, in that which was not tangible and that which is. And, you know, really kind of the most healthy people are able to say, hey, you know, both these things complement each other they're not in competition yes some things can tell us how and some things seek to tell us why yeah exactly and i I feel like dismissing exploration of the mystery of the spiritual component of our reality would be like dismissing art you know why have art if we're just focused on figuring out the mechanics of how everything works exactly art is certainly gripping with something beyond the how of our existence. Mm -hmm. You mentioned humor. There's a beautiful simplicity in even introducing that word into a conversation like this one. 
uh, humor certainly plays a part in a lot of your work, definitely in your how interesting your presence in social media. The fact that you know you are addressing and grappling with so many issues of grave concern that are you know no pun intended and without understatement deadly serious. I find the wit and joy that you're able to infuse in your commentary about the world around us is really helpful in processing, you know, so much of this bad news that we're constantly bombarded with on a daily basis. I'm a big fan of comedy, comedians, the comedic art form, and a major advocate and proponent of the idea of its importance and relevance to our spiritual health and our mental health. So I'm curious if you could elaborate on that a little bit as well. Uh, you know, you mentioned that as you mentioned the word humor, and I see that playing a role in your daily walk in life and, and what you represent and speak about. So I'm curious for your thoughts about that and the role it plays. Interesting. That's so funny because I I don't think I've ever I don't think anyone's ever um, <laughs> characterized my work that way. I was just talking to my cousin who I'm very close to about this a few days ago. You know, so many of our memories of our childhood and, and our family in, in particular involve us being together, you know, all, you know, all my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, cousins, parents, neighbors, extended family, and just laughing. Like, my dad is one of the funniest people on earth. And, I mean, even to this day, I mean, if you get him going, he's just really, really, really funny. And my mom is funny. Like, my, my whole family is actually, they're actually all very funny people. Laughter was, I mean, it's it was just a part of the rhythm of our lives. I know some of the, the starkest time in our lives, you know, was when my parents' parents were sick and would be in the hospital. And, you know, we would just laugh with them in the hospital bed. And, and that, that was just important to my upbringing, this sense of levity. I remember one of the first scriptures that I memorized as a kid is Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit drieth up the bones. Wow. And there was just this sense growing up that humor levity, laughter, a lightness about life, having a solid person, you know, that that's just a, that's a part of being a solid and whole person, uh, is being able to laugh at ourselves. Um, not laugh at the expense of other people, but, but right. being able to laugh at ourselves. I think that's important too. I, it's something I've seen, uh, Patton Oswalt talk about, in interviews when it comes to, you know, the idea of what, what's funny and what's off limits and the, the kind of the mechanics of a joke and, you know, something he had said that when it comes to different quote unquote sensitive issues, a joke isn't funny when it's at the expense of the victim. You can, you can talk about a lot of these issues so long as the butt of the joke is the oppressor and not the oppressed. Mm, I'm, para yes. I'm paraphrasing, but that was, that was basically his point. And I found that to be a truism and, you know, the types of humor that I respond to. Well, and you think, and I know a lot of scholars have talked about this, and this is not one of my areas of expertise, but I really, really appreciate Jesus's use of humor. We don't necessarily think of him as a funny person, but I think Father James Martin talks about this quite a bit in his work that some of the illustrations Jesus gave of a camel going through the eye of a needle. <laughs> I mean, that that's a, if you actually think about it, that's actually quite funny. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. you know, kind of the, the cultural and linguistic differences that don't make that as funny to us. And, and you know, we're very reverent about that. And we've heard it all of our that. lives. So we're, yeah, yes. we're used and to so being we, reverent about it, but yeah. Yeah. We don't think about kind of how shocking and funny that might have been <laughs> to his original audiences. <laughs> Yeah, and poss possibly even a little bit crude, contemporary. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there was this sense of, you know, prophets were always kind of mocking empire, and and we often think of prophets as these singular charismatic people, 
but often prophets were kind of this traveling band of outlaws who did not speak their prophecies, they sang them. Hmm. And so they would go from village to village performing these prophecies in groups. And then we'll, we'll call this group Ezekiel, or we'll call this group Isaiah, but it, it usually was a band of people. Huh. And, and so kind of this lightness, this um, musicality, I mean, I mean, it's there. It's there in the Bible. It's there in life. It's, it's there, you know, when I'm walking to work and I trip and no one sees it, but to me, it's like the funniest thing on earth. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's there when I make a mistake or someone makes a mistake in liturgy on a Sunday. It's, it's this surprising thing that happens um, in the middle of life that says, you are taking all of this so seriously, and as it should be, but please give yourself some room to laugh. Yeah, and and even in the way that, and, I, and again, I would I would say you're a good, great example of this, the idea of kind of almost undermining empire and oppression by getting a laugh at its expense, you know, well, kind of poking and, yeah, holes and, and, that, and there's one person you'll never see laugh, and that's Donald Trump. He does not laugh. <laughs> exactly. Um, he's not a happy person. He cannot tell a joke. I mean, you know, there was that, that it was like a comedy dinner he he did with Hillary Clinton during the campaign. Yeah. And he just doesn't he does not understand humor. You've never seen any of his children laugh. I mean, they're just a, a deeply unhappy family. Hillary believes that it's vital to deceive the people by having one public policy and a totally different policy in private. For example, here she is tonight in public pretending not to hate Catholics. <laughs> yeah, and o Obama would kill at those correspondence Oh, dinners. absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, and then Trump refused to, to do the correspondence dinner. Yeah. I mean, yes, he's antagonistic toward journalists, but I also think he does not have a sense of humor. And I think that that is a, um, a very telling window. He, so two things, he does not laugh and he does not have a pet. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the first things I liked about the first Episcopalian church that I visited was that St. Francis was very revered by that particular congregation and pets and companion animals were allowed in service. I'd never seen or heard of that before, but pe people brought dogs and cats to church. And one really cool thing that I once heard of, and I, I haven't necessarily seen this confirmed before, but in the old German, German Lutheran church, the pastor would stand up, and this was a, an old Lutheran tradition, the pastor would stand up on Easter and just tell jokes. That was the sermon hmm. on Easter. Wow. And it was this sense, and I actually, the Black Baptist Church I grew up in, the way they described the resurrection was like that was God's joke on Satan. Wow. Wow. And so there was, there's this sense in a lot of Christian traditions that the resurrection is the ultimate ha-ha on evil, the yeah. ultimate ha-ha on injustice and oppression and death of any kind. Um, and so at the heart of, of Christian proclamation and Christian practice is this sense that, that God gets the final laugh. And the final laugh is not at our expense. The final laugh is to our glory and our, our um, deep immersion in human experience. Mm. At, the, at the expense of evil. Yes, at the expense of evil and oppression. Isn't it funny? The, the, I would say the twin pillars of the original criticisms of Barack Obama early into his campaigning for president was that he lacked political experience and that he was a celebrity. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and here we are. Um, my, how the table Yeah, racists, racists are very adaptable. Um, <laughs> and they, yes, they find a way to um, jump through a lot of intellectual hoops you know a few years ago donald trump 
did one of the roasts, like the Friars Club roasts. Donald say he wants to run for uh, president and move on into the White House. Why not? It wouldn't be the first time you pushed a black family out of their home. And Donald, I'm not even sure if you're aware of this, but the only difference between you and Michael Douglas from the movie Wall Street is that no one's going to be sad when you get cancer. And yeah, he, he barely laughs through it. He makes that sort of flustered, pained, smug face that he and our vice president have in common. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as someone who follows a lot of the celebrity roasts, you know, Anthony Jeselnik, who's a comedian I've seen a lot, he was a writer on some of those roasts previously, and then that was the one where he sort of debuted um, on the public stage. Anyway, I, I saw an interview with him where he was talking about writing for the Trump roast and performing at it. And the interviewer had said something like, you know, at each of these roasts, uh, the celebrities who are being roasted always have a couple of topics that are off limits that no one can joke about. Uh, you know, like with Charlie Sheen, he just, he didn't want any jokes about his mom. You know, everyone kind of had their, their particular thing. And they asked Anthony Jeselnik if Trump had anything that was off limits. And he said, (laughs) we could make fun of his hair his kids, his divorces. The only thing that we weren't allowed to make jokes about was anything that implied that he has less money than he says he does. The, the one joke I remember that, like, because Donald Trump is so uh, exciting to me because you can't hurt him. He's like the, he's the perfect punching bag because he can't, no one feels bad for him ever. But I love that I made a joke about him having cancer. That was like the meanest joke possible. He does not have cancer, but I made that joke and he, it didn't phase him at all. But I made a joke about, I said, uh, Donald Trump, you have a great sense of humor. You've always been willing to uh, embarrass yourself on Saturday Night Live and the casino business. And he was devastated. He was so angry that I made a joke about his uh, casino failing that I thought that was hilarious. That was great. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. So telling about our current state of affairs. Yeah. And unsurprising. <laughs> and, uh, and, and unsurprising. Yeah, it's gotten kind of old at this point. Uh, for listeners and for myself, who are some of those early Christian thinkers, theologians, saints? You know, if you could pick one or two to, you know, give us a homework assignment to <laughs> who, uh, you know, who, who spoke about or wrestled with some things that might tie into some of the things we've talked about. Who are a couple that you would send us send us? after to go read. I know that everyone knows about her, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, you know, she most likely was illiterate, so didn't write anything. But I think if we paid attention and prayed with um, just the few places that she appears with speaking parts in the Bible, Mm -hmm. there's so much to be learned from her, so much to be experienced with her um, as the as the, the mother of someone who died at the hands of a bloodthirsty empire wow. and someone who herself was a revolutionary in her own right. Um, and one needs only look as far as the Magnificat in Luke, I think Luke one or Luke two. Another person is St. Monica, who is St. Augustine of Hippo's mother. She was a North African woman who was a devout Christian. Augustine did not become a Christian until much later in his life. And it was through the influence of his, again, devout Christian African mother. Um, And he attributes so much of his thinking and his faith to St. Monica, his mother, and she is revered specifically among Roman Catholics of African descent in this country. Hmm. So I think it's, it's interesting to think about these women, their context, how they're often overlooked and, and overshadowed because of their sons, um, but how their sons would not be who they were without their influence um, and without their their personhood apart from their sons. So 
I would see a modern corollary, and uh, the first person that comes to mind is Afini Shakur. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, passed away about this time last year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it fits a mm-hmm. lot of the qualifications of, of what you just described. Fascinating stuff, my friend. Well, thank you again for having me on. This has been fun. Thank you much, sir, and I hope to speak with you again soon. That does it for this episode of No Prize from God. My thanks to the Reverend Broderick Greer. You can follow Broderick and all of his activities by going to broderickgreer.com. To get the proper spelling of that, just check the description of this episode that you're listening to. And please give us a review and a rating in the iTunes store and Stitcher, wherever you're listening to podcasts, because the more positive reviews we get, the higher the visibility in the store and the more people that can discover No Prize from God and share in these conversations that hopefully you are finding some enjoyment in. Give us a follow, No Prize from God, on Facebook and Instagram, and No Prize from God underscore on Twitter. I'm at Ryan Downey on Twitter and Superhero HQ on Instagram. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, which includes Pop Curse with Ryan J. Downey and Speak and Destroy, a Metallica podcast about all things Metallica by Metallica fans for Metallica fans. Listen to previous episodes of No Prize from God with Maddie Mullins of Memphis Mayfire, Jesse Leach of Killswitch Engage, and please subscribe to stay tuned for more. You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.